early on, we saw COVID really focus more in urban centers. You know, I think broad exceptions for a couple of meatpacking plants in the Navajo Nation, where, where we saw it enter into rural communities. But it was really New York City was the focus of everyone's attention. Over the past several months and weeks, we've seen more and more rural communities devastated by this disease. We've seen per capita death rates among the highest in rural communities. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Rural Matters. I'm your host, Michelle Rathman. And of course, if this is the first time you're joining us, we're so glad that you're here. And to our return listeners, I want you to know how truly grateful we are for your interest in the topics and issues we discuss here on the program. In any case, we do hope that you will become a part of our Rural Matters family by subscribing to our free podcast wherever you like to listen. And when you do, you will automatically get all your episodes in this series as well as those past present and future. Uh, as always, it is our goal to increase awareness, inform discussion, and promote intelligent dialogue on the most important issues facing rural stakeholders today. Um, with that said, I, I just want to, again, just say to you that if you have a topic or an idea, or if you'd like to learn more about any of the guests that we have on the program, please feel free to email us at podcasttoday at gmail.com. That's podcast, the number today at gmail.com. So today on Rural Matters, we're going to continue with part three of our four-part series on two extremely important issues facing rural America today. And not just today, it's, it's, these have been issues that are, are, uh, have long held, um, very important for rural communities across this country. So it's a series that we've developed in collaboration with and underwritten by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And our first two episodes, we focused on poverty in rural America. Uh, in the first episode of the series, I spoke with Luke Schaefer and Catherine Eden. They are the authors of $2 a Day, The Art of Living on Virtually Nothing in America. Both of them led, uh, they're both lead researchers on poverty in America. And in the second episode, I had the opportunity, really the privilege of speaking with three graduate students from the University of Michigan's Poverty Solutions. And they gave us a perspective on poverty that I frankly believe that every American needs to understand if we are uh, going to finally have a resolve to these issues. So today we're going to shift gears, and in this episode, and the final episode as well in this series, we're going to close our discussion uh, and, and focus on key issues in rural America likely to impact the 2020 elections. And of course, all of this at a time when everyone, certainly rural included, is battling COVID-19 and our nation grapples with issues involving social injustice, inequality, and police reform. So we all have a lot on our plates, a, a lot of stress, and these are really important conversations for us to have. So uh, we've got we've got to bring in some people who know a lot more about this than me. And so with that said, it's my pleasure to introduce our guests who can help us put real issues in the context in this election season. So first, let me welcome Nathan Oli. Nathan serves as the Chief Executive Officer of the Rural Community Assistance Partnership, or RECAP, a national network of nonprofits focused on access uh, to water, economic development, and capacity building for rural communities across the country. RECAP's work is assisting some of the smallest rural communities in the U.S., and it helps them build capacity and opportunity in every state across the country. He previously served as the senior advisor at the U.S. Economic Development Administration and served on the White House Rural Council, leading the engagement in place-based initiatives across the Department of Commerce. We are also, welcome to you, Nathan. I'll take a breath there. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Michelle. Excited to be here. 
Great. So I'm also really pleased to welcome Kate Castling. Kate is the director with the Bipartisan, Bipartisan Policy Center Action, where she works on healthcare policy advocacy. I was telling Kate that the Bipartisan Policy Center is one of my go-to places for reliable information. Uh, prior to joining BPC Action, Kate worked for more than eight years on Capitol Hill, most recently serving as legislative assistant for Senator Joe Manchin, specializing in healthcare, education, and labor policy. And that role, she managed the Senator's work on the Senate Appropriations, Labor, Health, and Human Resources Subcommittee, and the Joint Selection Committee on Solvency and Multi-Employer Pension Plans. So as I said, I've got two very intelligent individuals who are going to join us for this important conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, Nathan, I want to kind of start off uh, with you because we are focusing on the issues that will likely impact voters in this 2020 election and specifically in rural areas. Um, in your view, and for as long as you've been at this, how has the role of rural communities in elections changed over the past decade? It's a great question, Michelle, and, and it's a really important time to be having these conversations. You know, I think over the last decade, the rural, the role of rural and, and quite frankly, tribal communities, small communities across the country has evolved and is continuing to evolve. You know, I think there's a difference between the role they play in in federal versus statewide versus local elections, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly there's even a difference at the federal level between what you might see in a presidential or even a Senate race versus a House race where you're looking at a specific uh, geographic area of a state rather than the entire state. Um, but rural communities itself have played an actually increasingly significant role, especially in some of the larger elections over the last decade itself. I think in many ways, these communities have felt left behind, um, not just by policymakers, but by policy itself. And so you're starting to see more of an engagement from small communities uh, in elections, whether you're talking local, statewide or federal. And I think it's really important to make sure that the voices of those communities are at the forefront of policymakers and of the policies that they implement, uh, because you're seeing an increasing divide in the perception of, of how rural communities are served and how their policymakers serve them in, in the ways that they operate on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. I'll just share with you. I had a conversation with a family member over the weekend, and we were just talking about you know the state of our nation and the perceptions that people have. And my family knows that my work for the last 20 years has been sorely focused on rural. And she said, you know, until recently, I really you know, kind of labeled, you know, rural is one thing and urban is another thing. And so I, I agree with you. I think it's so important that we take a look at this from a different lens. Um, you know, for Kate, I, I just want to ask you this. I know that um, there's a lot of perception out there about rural voting one way and urban voting another way. But I'm curious from your perspective and the work that you do, where is there political agreement on rural issues? You know, if we could kind of take down that wall, if you will, where, where do you see there to be some some movement and a shift in a more positive uh, direction? Yeah, I, I actually think that rural is one of those spaces where you can find pretty strong bipartisan agreement. So the Bipartisan Policy Center just did a substantial rural health project. And what I can tell you is that, so while some of the details are a little bit hard and a little bit partisan and, and difficult to work through, mm -hmm. the top line issues, there's wide 
bipartisan, um, broad, broad agreement on the need to improve access to healthcare in rural communities. Um, you know, the need to increase funding, the need to improve the workforce, the need to make sure that, um, you know, folks have access to the care that they need when they need it and, you know, don't necessarily have to drive three hours to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we did a lot of work with bipartisan members across, you know, in both chambers of Congress. Um, and there's really enthusiastic support. I, I think moving anything is difficult, um, but I do think you see support for action in rural health. Um, and similarly, you know, at the presidential level, you see both President Trump and Vice President Biden having, you know, significant rural health platforms and saying that this is an issue that they want to focus on. As part of our project, um, the Bipartisan Policy Center did a poll and, you know, we looked at rural health care and we looked at voters and what they were thinking about. And um, I'm I believe it was 93% of Republicans and 92% of Democrats both said that rural health care was a, was a huge issue for them. Mm-hmm. And three-fifths of voters said that, you know, they would prioritize a candidate who focused on rural health care. Um, I'll, I'll let Nathan speak to the to other other broader rural issues um, since I mostly focus, focus on healthcare. But what I can say is that we really do see space um, there for bipartisan action. Yeah, I, I read it was very interesting. So the statistic is three in five voters, 61% to your point would be more likely to vote for a candidate in the 2020 election cycle who says he or she uh, will address healthcare in rural America. And, and you and I both know that, that there's a lot there. It's It, it spans beyond what most can imagine that looks like. So, you know, Nathan, I'll skip over to you. And um, aside from healthcare, and I know that your work is very focused. I, I love what you all say. You know, you start at the tap because we are, we have to look at the social determinants of health and people think that, you know, maybe we focus a little bit too much on healthcare, but it's not just healthcare per se. It's all of those influencers around, uh, you know, outcomes and not just, um, with respect to access to hospital beds, if you will. So where are the major policy areas that might typically be overlooked that could help determine the outcome of the rural vote this year? Well, Kate brought up a great point on rural health, and that's clearly a high priority in these areas. And, you know, the first thing I want to say is, is obviously RCAP itself doesn't play a role in elections. We certainly are advocating on the Hill and the policymakers on behalf of the communities we serve. Um, but we don't in particular actually play a role in elections themselves. But we do really push and advocate and talk about a number of the the other pieces that maybe are a little less known. Um, healthcare, obviously, is a big one. Broadband is one that everybody talks about. In fact, RCAP uh, partnered with the National Association of Counties, Rural Risk, Farm Credits, uh, and a couple others to put together a tested app to actually measure what broadband accessibility was truly like on the ground rather than just taking the word of of the FCC's broadband mapping tool, which is utilized by the ISP providers. Uh, so we get a better sense and lens on what the actual broadband accessibility looks like in rural communities. The same thing on the access to water side. Uh, if you look at the United States water system itself, there's 150,000 some odd public water systems across the country. 97% of those serve communities of 10,000 or less, and 72% of those serve communities of 500 or less. And so there's a huge preponderance of really small rural communities that are served by individual water systems. And the impacts of policy on funding those programs, whether that's grants or loans, the impact on creating opportunities for communities to get technical assistance to understand how to access those funds and those programs is really key and critical to those communities. So access to water is a 
critical issue. It's also an equity issue and ensuring that not just you have access to water, but also that water is affordable. Certainly broadband is a huge component. And I think everyone in today's day and age understands that even more, given the fact that schools have been shut down and students have been having to e-learn. And obviously many workforces uh, have been moved to, to working at home. But you also have you know, other pieces of this puzzle that play a large role in, in the larger health care environment. Telehealth as part of broadband is a piece of that. But you also have uh, economic development impacts in communities, uh, ensuring that you've got infrastructure of all sizes in communities that allow for businesses to grow and thrive is really key and crucial. And all of these policy impacts play a role in the larger prosperity in small rural communities across the country. And the policies that are behind the funding and the programs and the access to those to those programs, whether it's the federal or the state level, have significant impacts on these communities. And so it's really important to be talking uh, when you're looking at policymakers and how they're put into office from a local state and federal level that you understand the impacts that uh, the positions that those potential policymakers are taking, how they might impact your community. That's so true. You know, so Kate, I'm going to, you know, we, we can't ignore the fact that COVID-19 has, we, we've known for a long time that our rural hospitals have been in trouble. And I'm, I'm very much involved with uh, advocating for more resources. And I think COVID has exposed what so many of us have known and feared for a very long time, which is that our rural health infrastructure is in trouble. Um, and so what impact, in your view, of COVID, what impact will COVID-19 in rural communities affect? How will it affect elections, in fact? Because I know that there's a lot of money being poured into. Uh, many of the hospitals I work with have received their PPE, PPP protections and uh, the, the money they received through HRSA. But that's short term. So how do you think COVID-19 will shape policy and or uh, politics uh, this year? Yeah, I, I think those are, are policy and politics. I think those are two slightly different questions. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's very clear. Uh, we know that this virus is more dangerous and deadly for those who are older and those who have serious underlying medical conditions. And we also know that rural communities tend to be older and tend to, you know, have more pre folks with more pre-existing conditions. Uh, we also know that treatment for the very ill requires sophisticated equipment in intensive care units overseen by specially trained healthcare providers. And we also know that, you know, rural hospitals often don't have that equipment, or if they do, they don't have the provider, or if they do, you know, I think that the one stat that I saw was 18 million people live in counties with hospitals, but no intensive care units, and 11 million live in communities with no hospital at all. Um, you know, so if we see early on, we saw COVID really focused more in urban centers, you know, I think broad exceptions for a couple of meatpacking plants in the Navajo Nation, where, where we saw it enter into rural communities. But it was really New York City was the focus of everyone's attention. Over the past several months and weeks, we've seen more and more rural communities devastated by, um, by this disease. We've seen per capita death rates among the highest in rural communities. Um, so I, I, you know, I think what we're going to see going forward um, is a lot of folks who want better treatment and want better access and are going to demand that. And this is really illustrating those problems. This is saying, you know, pointing a bright, shiny light on problems that already existed, as you very well know, in terms of hospital infrastructure and access and saying, you know, these problems have to be solved. And this is showing us why. Um, 
I think if you're talking about, so that's the, you know, the policy side and the bipartisan policy center has put forth a number of proposals for how we you know improve that hospital infrastructure, how we can help communities rebuild and provide the services that their constituents actually need. Um, you know, we also see rural communities really struggling economically. You know, the whole country is struggling economically. We have ma- you know, massive unemployment, but rural communities are really devastated when one factory or one meatpacking plant or, you know, one large employer or one hospital, for example, when they close, uh, you know, those economic problems have, uh, you know, reverberations throughout the community. And that is going to be part of the political conversation. So I think you're going to have folks who are concerned about the health side, they're concerned about the economic side. And you know, I'll just say that five months is an absolute lifetime in, mm-hmm. in politics. So it's impossible to know sort of exactly how folks will be feeling and where those, you know, where those needs and those concerns will push people. Um, but I, I do think it is likely to have a significant impact on, on how folks vote and what they're looking at you know, what they're demanding of their federal leaders. Yeah, I agree. I think back, uh, I've told folks that back in February when we were at the um, National Rural Health Association Policy Institute, we were, and this sounds so silly, we were simply talking about rural hospital closures. And then one month later, you know, we have this major pandemic that's uh, closing hospitals at a far greater pace than what we had anticipated. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask you both to, you know, I'm not, I know you don't have crystal balls, but I, I would like uh, to hear from you, Kate, um, if you could kind of lay out for us what President Trump and Vice President Biden, if you could uh, give us a window into what they might be proposing to improve rural health. And then Nathan, I've got some questions uh, to you about just the urban and rural divide in politics and how we can bridge those gaps. So if you just stay with us, we'll be right back. We want to give a very special thanks to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for sponsoring not only this episode, but all four episodes this month in our four-part series. The first two episodes on rural poverty and the final two on rural issues that will likely impact the 2020 elections. We're proud to have the support of and to collaborate again this year with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the nation's largest philanthropy dedicated solely to health. Since 1972, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has supported research and programs targeting some of America's most pressing health issues from substance abuse to improving access to quality health care. The foundation is committed to ensuring that everyone in America has a fair and just opportunity to achieve better health wherever they live, learn, work and play. More information can be found at rwjf.org, that's rwjf.org, or on Twitter at rwjf. Now let's get back to our discussion. Okay, we're back with our conversation with Nathan Oli and Kate Castling, and we're talking about um, the issues that will likely impact the rural vote in 2020. And Kate, I, I want to ask you, um, based on your work and what you can tell us today, where does President Trump and Vice President Biden, in terms of what they're proposing to improve rural health, can you kind of do a, a side-by-side, uh, go down the tick sheet and tell us what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as I, as I said before, 
both platforms, both Vice President Biden and President Trump, really are focused on this issue and and consider it important um, to what they're doing. So sort of just walking through the top line um, Biden platform, you know, he is looking at rural hospitals and providing adequate funding. He wants to expand grant funding for new rural hospitals and mental health clinics, double federal funding for community health centers, um, you know, looking at federal regulations around rural hospitals, uh, creating a new designation for a 24-7 emergency department um, only. So that, that's actually something that the Bipartisan Policy Center has looked at a similar proposal, looking allowing communities to have more flexibility in the types of hospitals that they have so that they can meet the needs of, of those communities. Um, you know, he has a proposal looking at workforce, including, you know, increasing funding for residency programs and doing more to get high school students um, involved in, in health care. Mm-hmm. And he's also, you know, looking at telehealth, particularly for mental health and specialty care and investment in broadband infrastructure. And then President Trump um, in his FY21 budget included you know, billions of dollars for rural America. And that included significant funding for implementing telemedicine and rural health clinics um, and other rural healthcare infrastructure. Uh, we've also seen CMS over the course of the, this term implement the rural health strategy, which focuses on applying a rural health lens to the vision and the work that CMS is doing. Um, you know, everything that they do, sort of looking at it through a rural health lens and saying, how can we fix the rural health care system this way? And they've also recently, um, somewhat controversially, in uh, adjusted the hospital wage index, which is healthcare wonk speak for um, increasing Medicare payments for rural hospitals. Um, and then, of course, they have overseen this dramatic expansion of telehealth in response to the public health emergency from COVID-19. So we've seen just incredible relaxation of rules and increased access to telehealth for folks, not just in rural communities, but across the board. Um, and Bipartisan Policy Center has been you know, really strongly advocating for increased access to telehealth because we think it doesn't solve, but helps address a lot of the challenges of access to healthcare in rural communities, including provider shortages and including long distances to, to travel um, to receive health. Yeah, that's so true. I'm watching that space very carefully because I have many clinics and hospitals that I'm working with that this has really been uh, an important move for them. And the hope is that the relaxation, you know, that is seen as something that's so vital that we keep it going, that we don't go backwards. That's my personal opinion, uh, because I, I do think it's it, it will be the matter of whether or not someone has access to services in the future. So, Nathan, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about why rural should matter to everybody, regardless of where you're, what your zip code is. And so my question to you is, how do you perceive the urban-rural divide in politics? And how do we get to a point where we can bridge that divide? For once and for all, is that a, is it a pipe dream of mine? <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough question. You know, I think there's definitely certainly a perception of that divide. And, and in some cases, I think that's probably a very true statement of, of the way that it looks and feels. Mm-hmm. One of the difficulties when you talk about urban and rural communities in the political environment is the reality in those communities uh, can be very different. Uh, many rural counties, for example, are huge geographic areas. You know, you look at the state of Montana, for example, they have one congressional district. They actually technically have more senators than they do uh, congressional representatives. And so you look at that compared to a place like New York City, where you've got uh, multiple congressional districts in a small, ge- in a relatively small geographic region, and you automatically have a difference of how services are provided, how elections are run, how you actually reach out to the electorate in those areas. 
But I also think there's a lot of similarities, especially when you look at those places that are on the economic fringes, the most vulnerable populations. The issues in those communities in many ways can be very similar. It may look different and feel a little bit different, but you still have issues of capacity in those mm-hmm. communities that, you know, whether you're talking rural health or urban health or whether you're talking rural broadband or urban broadband, I think especially the COVID reality has brought light that, uh, number one, there are issues that that exist in both urban and rural environments. Uh, and you've also, in some ways, probably had more urban communities start to understand some of the realities that rural communities are facing, especially in the broadband spectrum, where you're seeing families that are being directly affected by their students' uh, either ability or inability to interact online with their teachers in this in this current environment. And so in some ways that provides opportunities to bring people together in a way that maybe we didn't have in the past. I still think there's a lot of work to be done in, in bringing urban and rural communities to the same conversation. Uh, unfortunately, our political environment has gotten so disjointed that it seems like we don't have productive conversations regardless of the subject we're talking about. But there still are certainly opportunities to be talking about the connections that exist between urban and rural communities. When you're talking about an economic base, there's always a natural connection between urban and rural communities, whether you're talking how agriculture gets into the marketplace or whether you're talking about uh, you know, the ability of uh, tourism dollars to flow in and around a region. We know that there's a, a link between urban and rural communities that exists in almost every area of the country. Unfortunately, we've gotten to this kind of political divide where it seems like they're pitted against one another rather than working towards the same goal. Yeah. When in fact, in many cases, they are working towards the same goal. They may look at it from a different lens and they may be represented in different ways. But there are certainly opportunities if we can find a way to get away from the partisan divide that exists and talk about the collective good between urban and rural communities as opposed to making them compete against one another. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think we that these are conversations that are long overdue. And, you know, Kate, my question too, given what Nathan just shared with us, how important, um, you know, at the end of the day, every every voter's voice is important. We're in a democracy and that's the way it works here. So how important is the rural voter in the 2020 election, especially considering both the Electoral College and the Senate map? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is actually every, as you said, every voter is important. But when you look at the Senate and the Electoral College, um, the rural vote is really elevated in both of those contexts because you have, you know, two senators per state, regardless of population. So Wyoming has the same representation of New York. And so you, you, you have a lot of power there. And if you're looking at the Electoral College, I think 2016 is a fantastic example. You had an 11 percentage point shift from folks who voted for in rural communities who voted for Obama in 2012 and shifted to Donald Trump in 2016. Donald Trump won the presidency by about 80,000 votes in three states. And so there's a strong argument to be made that that rural vote in, you know, particularly in those three states really pushed him over into the, you know, into the win the win column. Um, and so the rural voter has a lot of, of clout 
and which is part of the reason that, you know, both Vice President Biden and President Trump are so focused on rural issues and really bringing this to the forefront. You know, it's the reason that the U.S. Senate is, you know, strongly considering rural issues and when they when they work on on healthcare policy and broadband policy and water policy and all of these rural needs are, are at the forefront of the, the minds of most senators. Um, it's a little bit different in the House because uh, because the structure of the vote is different because it is proportional representation. So you do have more focus on on rural issues where those votes really have a huge substantial impact. You know, I want to ask you both because I, I wrote this down uh, a note that I want to make sure that I mentioned because we are, uh, it's kind of gotten buried under the mountains of news that we wake up to every day, just in terms of the rural census. Okay, let's just talk about that for a moment. How significant, how important? I mean, I, I think I know the answer to the question, but from both of your perspective, um, you know, the census is, is not a, a political act. It is so important because it helps shape policy. Do you have concerns about um, you, you know, just where rural will be represented, where the census is concerned because of the situation that we're in? So I'm happy to step in here. I, I think there's a significant concern on a number of issues with the census. Number one, especially in today's environment where you don't have people out and about as much as they, they have, uh, rural communities may be out, maybe maybe affected more than urban communities in that environment. Mm-hmm. Number one, just from a broadband accessibility standpoint, if you don't have access to a computer with internet, it's hard for you to actually fill out the, the online application, or not application, uh, census mm-hmm. form. The other piece to this, though, the thing that we see through our work almost every single day is the census has such an impact on funding and eligibility for communities for a full decade. Obviously, the ACS plays a role in, in updating that information. But if a community doesn't have an accurate representation of, of their community wealth, their community population, that has an impact directly on their ability to access federal funds in the future. So say, for example, in a community of 500 and they sample, you know, five people, 10 people, 15 people, but they sample uh, the 15 wealthiest people in that community or the 15 poorest communities, uh, families in that community, that's going to, in some ways, uh, underrepresent or overrepresent what that community looks like and the the incomes that exist in that community. So if you, in some way, shape, or form, have a community where you over uh, estimate that. So you, you talk to five families that are doing much better off than other community, other, other families in that community, then that community may not be eligible for some of the low-income programs that are really important for those types of communities to access. On the other hand, there's also an, ac- uh, an ac- accessibility issue around the diversity that exists. Mm-hmm. There's a huge perception in many places across this country that rural is not diverse. When we know firsthand from the work that we do that there's an incredible diversity that exists across across rural communities uh, in this country. You've got, uh, whether you're talking the, the rural black belt in, in the south, uh, where you've got a strong and large black population. Whether you're talking about in areas of Minnesota, where you've got a strong uh, Arab American, we're talking about the southern border, where you've got a strong Latino population. Uh, you know, there's an incredible diversity that exists. And those communities oftentimes are a little more hesitant uh, to be uh, a part of the census process. And if they're not a part of that process, then we're going to both underrepresent what their, what, what that minority population looks like, what the community of color population looks like in communities, but we're also going to lose their voices. 
And that's a really important piece, not just to the census, but the impact that the census has on federal programs uh, across the country and really across the decade. Yeah, that's why I wanted to bring it up, because I think that we have to look at this from a much broader perspective than just, you know, what we, you know, there are people's kind of their go to place to just flip on the news and see what's happening. But you really understand that policy is shaped by this kind of data. It's so essential. You know, before we close out this discussion, and I, I have so many other questions I, I could ask, but I want to stay on track here. So, Nathan, I'm going to ask you this, and then, Kate, my follow-up question, too, uh, I'll t- share with you in just a moment. I would like to know uh, what your two, you know, your, as the CEO of that organization, your top two recommendations for either presidential campaign when it comes to discussing rural issues. And then while you answer that, Nathan, uh, Kate, if you could be thinking about what would be your recommendations for rural voters? Where, just in, not who they should vote for, but rather uh, what they should be researching, why they should be researching, maybe where they should be seeking their information so that they have a good balance, uh, and, and, you know, that they can make decisions based on what is real, um, you know, data and information that will truly impact their decision making. So, Nathan, let me go back to you. What would be your top two recommendations for either presidential campaign when it comes to discussing rural issues this year? So I think, first of all, listen, mm-hmm. both campaigns have to be willing to listen to rural communities and the needs of those communities that are represented in those conversations. Going to those communities, being present Uh, And more importantly, listening and hearing what people are saying is really critical to ensuring that these communities both are represented, but they also feel like they're part of the process. And so don't be afraid to spend time to spend resources to be in these communities, to listen to these communities and to take that the feedback that you receive and think through intelligently through your policy proposals, how you actually uh, represent those voices. I think that's fundamental to every campaign, whether it's a presidential campaign, a congressional campaign, a statewide campaign, or even a local campaign. I think the second thing I would say is don't think of policies for rural communities in an urban context. And I say that because I, I feel many times we just say, oh, we'll create a set-aside program for a rural community mm-hmm. that can access the same program that large communities are, are able to access routinely. Think about and be really intentional about programs that have a rural context to them and how you might roll out opportunities for rural communities to access programs in maybe slightly different ways than than urban communities. And and don't just assume that what works in an urban community could work in a rural community just on a smaller scale. Uh, That issue of scale to me is really important. And, And Kate touched on this earlier in some of her comments. I think of it more as impact than I do scale. Think about how you can create programs and policies that will have an impact in rural communities that are also accessible to those same communities. And, and don't look at it with the lens of we, we do this program in large communities and we'll just create a set aside for rural communities to access it. Think intentionally about how you can create policies and programs that rural communities both need but also that they can access. Yeah, I think that's a great point. We we have a, a term here that we say, uh, when you've seen one rural community, you've seen one. And I think that's also important too, you you may or may not agree, is that, I, I mean, I've, I've traveled to your point to rural Idaho versus rural Georgia and rural community, their needs are different. Although there are so many similarities, I think that's important too, is just, just not box rural into, uh, you know, one category. So Kate, close us out. Can you, you know, if you, if you had uh, an audience of rural voters and you do uh, through this podcast, um, what would be your counsel to them just in terms of of how to gain access to information that could help influence their decision um, that is not 
political per se, but rather focused on policies that will uh, have an, an impact in the way that they are able to live a quality life. Absolutely. I mean, I think the first thing is that you want to seek a really broad set of news sources, right? Relying on one news source or one, you know, organization that provides a particular perspective will never give you the whole story. And and I think it's, you know, local local news and local sources of information are incredibly important because they're going to be covering, you know, to the point that you just made about, you know, every rural community being different. They're going to be covering the issues that are important in your community and looking at the challenges challenges that, that, you know, the people around you face. Um, and so I think that that focusing on local news and getting a really broad, um, broad range of perspectives from different news sources is really helpful. Um, but I'd also really encourage folks to seek out their representation, to seek out their representatives, their, you know, their local mayor, their state legislator, their member of Congress, their senator, and ask them, have those conversations. Are they holding town halls? Participate and ask what they're what they're doing for rural America, what they're thinking about, what they want policies to be, what they're prioritizing, because that's a huge thing in politics, right? A politician can come out and say, you know, I believe in X, Y, Z, Q, seven, eight, nine. But which of those things do you care most about? Which of the which of those things are you going to be fighting um, to make happen? Uh, and and I think that's really important. I think voters can and should be asking those questions. You know, as as a former staffer, I always appreciated it when constituents reached out and said, "I really want to know what the senator's priorities are, and can we talk through? Can I talk about why that's important? Why you know what I what I think should be done is important to me." So yeah, I strongly it, encourage people to do that. Great points. Um, and and, yeah. and then, the yeah, go ahead. So I was just going to say, you can't just be talking to these folks in election season either, right? This has to be Absolutely. a ongoing piece. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the the only thing I'd add is just, you know, organizations like the Bipartisan Policy Center and RCAP are really, you know, doing lots of policy work where, you know, we at Bipartisan Policy Center, we try and provide it's not nonpartisan, uh, but it is, you know, we try and find that balance where, where can the parties agree and what folks can look at. And then we try and provide, you know, really good background information. And I know a lot of other organizations out there try, try and do the same thing. And so I, I'd seek out those, you know, nonpartisan or bipartisan folks that are, are really trying to, to tell the story in a fair and balanced way. Absolutely. I appreciate that because, you know, how can, how can you be a part of the solution if, you, if you're not part of the process? I mean, I really feel so strongly Absolutely. about that. If you are not familiar with the work that either one of these two really excellent guests uh, do, I really encourage you to seek them out. Uh, Nathan Oley and Kate Castling, your input, your voices on this particular subject have been so appreciated. Thank you so much for in, enlightening us and providing us with this information. Um, at this point, I, I do want to acknowledge and thank our Rural Matters marketing partners. They are include the Center for Rural Affairs, Community Hospital Corporation, Foundation for Rural Service, the Journal of Research in Rural Education, Learning Blade, NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, the National Rural Education Association, the National Rural Health Association, and Ohio Small and Rural Collaborative, as well as AASA, that's the School Superintendents Association, and the National Rural Assembly, the National Grange, the National Organization of State Offices of Rural Health. As you can see, these marketing partners also believe that rural does matter and uh, they help us elevate these conversations. So we're so appreciative to them. As I said earlier, if you'd like more information on the suggest on the topics that we're talking about today, if you have a guest that you'd like to suggest, 
feel free to reach out to us uh, at podcast today at Gmail. You can also send us a direct message on Twitter at Real Matters Pod or me personally at MRB Impact. As always, we appreciate if you'd rate this podcast, please do tell your friends and colleagues and we hope that you'll come back for episode four of this uh, really interesting conversation we're having about poverty and policy and politics in rural America. This Real Matters podcast is produced by Michael Levin Epstein. I thank him for that. I thank you for listening and we'll talk to you again next time on Rural Matters. Mm-hmm.